Well, welcome to week three in a series that we started now that we've been calling No End in Death. And like Clark had mentioned earlier, if you're a guest with us this morning or this is your first time here at Grace Church, man, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we count it an absolute honor that you'd be willing to spend your Sunday morning here with us. And uh, we're glad you're here, even though we are going through uh, what we've been saying is sort of a, a little bit of a difficult conversation. And so in this series, basically what we've been doing is we've been trying to address what we've said is honestly one of the most common but at the same time, one of the most difficult questions slash objections that surrounds the Christian faith. And uh, simply put, the question that we've been addressing in this question is this, is how can a loving God allow pain, suffering, and loss? And so that's the the big question we've been trying to address in this series. How can a loving God um, allow pain, suffering, and loss? And we said, this is a really important question. It's a very difficult question, but it's a really important question. Not only that, like we said, it's a very common question. This is a question that has been asked many different times in many different ways throughout the ages. And my guess is that all of us in this room, probably at one point or another, have found ourselves dealing with and wrestling with this very question. How can a loving God, a God who loves me and cares for me and and wants the best for me, how can he allow, how can he tolerate pain, suffering, and loss? How do we we understand uh, the hardship that we see in the media, the, the, the darkness that we see in our world? How do we understand the difficult things that we ourselves go through, the loss, the pain, the tragedy? How do we reconcile that with this idea of a God who really loves us? And so uh, we said this is a really important question. And not only is it an important question, a couple weeks ago we said this is also a personal question. This is not just some philosophical, theoretical musing. Uh, This is a personal question. It's emotionally charged. And my guess is that if you're a person right now who's in the crucible of pain, suffering, and loss, you're finding that you're asking this question, but you're not looking for a philosophical response. You're looking for a personal response because this is a personal question. And so it's for that reason that we said, man, you know, this is such a common question. It's such a difficult question. It's such an important question that we want to spend an entire series, six weeks, really looking at and unpacking what does the Bible teach on this topic? How does a loving God allow pain, suffering, and loss? So like I said, this is the third week in this series. So if you missed the last couple of weeks, I'd really encourage you to go online. You can check out the past couple of weeks for free on our podcast or on our uh, website. And so you can check that out. But today, we're going to continue in this conversation in week three. And so to do that, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles with, with me if you have them. And let's go to John chapter 11. All right, so I want to invite you, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Let's go to John chapter 11. And as always, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that is not a problem. And we actually have some Bibles for you in those chairs. And you'll be able to find uh, John 11 on page 748 in those Bibles that we have laid out there for you, okay? So go ahead and get there. Also, let me just say, if you're a guest and you don't own a Bible, just flat out don't have one, take one, all right? Make it a gift from us to you. And so John chapter 8, once you get there, why don't you put it on your lap and just hold it there, and we'll get there in a second. And for today's conversation, I actually want to start by asking you a question real quick, all right? So I have something in my hand here, and I don't know if you guys can see it in the back, if you can see what I'm holding in my hand here, but let me ask you a question real quick. Who can tell me what this is that I am holding in my hand? Just go ahead and yell it out. What is this? It is a Leatherman. That is right. You guys got it. So a Leatherman, as many of you know, is a a pocket-sized multi-tool. That's what a Leatherman is. Basically, it's a pocket knife, but it's much more than a pocket knife, right? This thing's got all kinds of cool stuff on it. So this is my Leatherman. It actually was a gift to me from you guys. I don't know if you know that. When I I celebrated 10 years here um, on staff, this was the gift that they gave me, which is so awesome that they're like, 10 years, here's a knife, you know? And uh, so very cool. But uh, so cool. So this thing's got a knife on it. It's got some pliers on it. Um, Mine has scissors on it. It has a can opener. 
It has um, both Phillips head and flat head screwdrivers. So this thing's really cool. And, and my guess is that many of you probably have something like this, right? You have a multi-tool, maybe a Leatherman or a Gerber or maybe a Swiss Army knife. What, what some of you know, maybe not all of you know, is that the first multi-tool is actually the Swiss Army knife. That was the first one. And it was designed for soldiers, hence the name Swiss Army Knife. And basically, um, it was designed for soldiers who were on the combat field, who were facing conflict, who were in the midst of adversity. And the inventors of the Swiss Army Knife basically said, look, we need to invent something uh, that is a single unit but is a multi-tool. And we need something that is small. We need something that is portable. We need something that is easy to use. And so the first multi-tool, the first Swiss Army knife, had on it, it had a knife, which of course is useful for many things. It had screwdrivers on it, which was actually first intended to assemble and disassemble your weapon so you could clean it. And then it had on it a can opener so you could open up, and open up your rations. And so the original uh, multi-tool was designed for soldiers because as many of us know, when you're facing war, when you're facing conflict, when you're facing adversity, you don't have neither the time nor the luxury to tote around your tools with you. You need a one-stop shop. You need a condensed version of every necessary tool that you can fit in your pocket and use at your convenience. So that's why it was originally invented. It was originally invented for soldiers. Well, now, of course, we know the multi-tool is used by many different people. So outdoorsmen, hunters, fishers, all types of people use these. And, of course, rednecks, right, who are trying to skin a squirrel while you know, picking their teeth and opening their beer all at the same time, right? Because that's what that's good for. So the multi-tool. Now, why do I tell you that? All right, well, here's why I bring this up. I want you to think of this series, for those of us who have been in the series, I want you to think of it a little bit like a multi-tool. I want you to think of it a little bit like a Leatherman. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've been with us, you, you may know we've been saying that one thing that is common for everyone in this room, is common to the human experience, is that every one of us in this life is going to face pain, suffering, and loss. And no one is exempt. And so either you have or you are or you're going to, and to some various degree, every single one of us in this room is going to face pain, suffering, and loss. And so the point of this series is not how do you avoid pain, suffering, and loss because that's impossible. You can't. The Bible teaches us that. So instead what we're saying is how do we equip ourselves for pain, suffering, and loss? And, and basically the way that we've been doing this is we said that we have been introducing what we've been calling six anchor statements, okay? And these six anchor statements, basically what these are is they are unassailable principles that come directly from the Bible. And you can think of these six different anchor statements and each week we're introducing one. You can think of each one almost as like a different tool on a Leatherman, okay? We, these are biblical truths that we have tried to condense down into the simplest, most portable form because here's what you know and here's what I know. When you're facing pain, suffering, and loss, you guys know this, that you don't have the time and you don't have the luxury to do a deep theological study on pain and suffering, man. You need truth and you need it now, right? You need hope and you need it quickly. You need to figure out how do I honor God in the midst of pain, suffering, and loss? And how do I do that without losing my faith? And that's what this series is all about. We want to equip you with six unassailable principles, with six anchor statements. So just as a review, by the way, if you were with us, we'll just go through those real quick. The first week, the first anchor statement was no end in death, which I feel really weird saying that with a knife in my hand. So I'm going to put this away now, right? But no end in death, that was our first anchor statement that we looked at together. And basically, if you're with us the first week, we talked about how the resurrection pretty much undergirds and is the foundation of the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. Because the resurrection tells us that death, suffering, and pain do not have the final say. 
They are not pointless. And so we looked at that. The second week that we were together last week, we looked at the second anchor statement, and that was this. I can't always be certain of his reasons, but I can always be certain of his love. And so last week we looked at that. I can't look in suffering and in pain. I can't always be certain of God's reasons. I can't always be certain of his reasons, but I can always be certain of his love. And we looked at Job last week. And basically we said the book of Job teaches us something. And the book of Job tells us that God is the creator and we are the created. And by necessity, that insinuates that there are some things that we simply cannot understand. God is the creator and we are the created. So that means that that by necessity, there has to be some things that we don't understand. So we talked about that last week and we said, man, just because you don't see purpose and you don't see reason in your pain and your suffering and your loss doesn't mean that there isn't any. And so we talked about that and we said, man, we, we can't always be certain of God's reasons, but we did say one thing you can be certain of is you can always be certain of God's love. That the cross of Jesus Christ communicates to us that God is so committed to human flourishing that he himself was not exempt from pain, suffering, and loss. But instead, he took those things on for us. And that is a commitment to us and is a profound declaration of his love. And so if you miss those weeks, like I said, I want, to, want you to catch up on those if you can. This week, I'm going to give you that third anchor statement. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give it to you right out of the gate. And then I'm going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it. Okay, so, so here it is. You guys ready for it? Third anchor statement is this, my adversity is an opportunity for unimaginable glory. Right, so let me say it again. My adversity, all right, so our suffering, our pain, your tragedy, your loss, your disease, your illness, your whatever it is you're going through, whatever that is, your, your adversity, my adversity is an opportunity, is an opportunity, all right, if dealt with correctly, all right? My, my adversity is an opportunity for unimaginable glory, for unimaginable glory. Now, now some of you, as you hear me say that, you're like, okay, what does that even mean? What are you even talking about? And how does it even apply? Like, help, help me understand. Okay, let's well, so spend the rest of our time doing today. I want to unpack that statement and hopefully by the end prove to you that the Bible teaches this and, and, uh, and we can see where this comes from. So before we jump to John 11, which is our passage for today, first I just want you to, to, to I want to show you something real quick in the Bible. And something that the Bible teaches us, and specifically the New Testament, but the whole Bible does, is that there is an, in, uh, this inseparable link between suffering and adversity and glory. All right? There's this, there is this inseparable link in the Bible between these two topics, suffering and glory. In fact, I actually included for you in your programs, if you look in there, there is a sheet of paper that has a sampling of different verses that reveal to us this connection, that there is this, that there is this connection between suffering and glory. And so if you want to grab those, you can check it out. I'll just, I'll just point out a couple of them. But like I said, this is, just a, this is just a brief sampling of some of the verses that tie this idea together for us. And so let me just, uh, if you just want to glance at a couple of them, look at Romans chapter 8 with me. It's on the top of that sheet. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says this. Look at this. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now look, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's the Apostle Paul makes a connection between these two things. Suffering and glory are somehow inseparably linked. But then he goes on in verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. All right, so there it is again. Now, the Apostle Paul is revealing to us that there is a connection. There's this inseparable connection between suffering and glory. Peter says the same thing. You can look at those verses there. Hop down real quick to 2 Corinthians 4. I want you to notice what it says there. This is awesome. 
It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Then check out verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles, okay? Our light and momentary afflictions, our light and momentary sufferings are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal, all right? And so over and over again in all these passages, what you see is a brief synopsis of what the whole Bible teaches, that there is a link between suffering and glory, all right? And if you look at these verses, you'll notice they have a lot of things in common. And I just, for the sake of our conversation, I just want to point out three things that these passages teach us about suffering and glory and then I'll give you a case study, okay? So here, here's the three things I want you to notice. And if you have those sheets, you can actually see this as well. Here's the first thing. Suffering, according to what the Bible teaches us, is a means to glory. First and foremost, suffering is a means to glory. I don't know if you noticed, but in all these passages that you have in front of you, the First Peter passage and the Romans passage and, and these other passages, it uses words like achieving or resulting or producing. It says our suffering is achieving glory. Our suffering is producing glory. Our suffering is resulting in glory. And so what that tells us is that suffering is an opportunity for increased glory, for unimaginable glory. That's what it's telling us. In other words, what it's saying is that God accomplishes glory, not in spite of our sufferings, but through our sufferings, through our hardship, through our adversity. All right. So that's the first thing. Suffering is a means to glory. Here's the second thing. This glory, you can see in these passages, the Bible tells us, is to be revealed. It's to be revealed over and over again in these passages. It says that that this glory is yet to be revealed. Our suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It's to be revealed. It's to be revealed. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your adversity, the glory that God has in mind that he wants to achieve through it is not visible. It's hidden. It has not been revealed. Some of you right now, you're facing something. You're going through something hard, maybe loss of a loved one or a tragedy or a disease or an illness or a sickness or loss of some type, whatever it might be. And you're saying to yourself, I don't see it. I don't see the hope. I don't see what God is trying to accomplish. I can't see him in the midst of this. And that's because, listen, that's because it's not revealed yet. It's not revealed. These passages tell us, Suffering is a means to glory. This glory is to be revealed. And then lastly, and most gloriously, the Bible tells us that glory outweighs suffering. That the glory that God wants to accomplish through our suffering and our pain and our loss far outweighs the suffering itself. I think it's fascinating. If you, just if you glance at that 2 Corinthians 4 passage again, I want you to notice verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. You hear what the Apostle Paul just said there? He says, listen, I'm weighing it out. I'm weighing it out. And he says, our light and momentary sufferings, he's like, they're not even worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory that God wants to accomplish through this. You see, the Apostle Paul looks at the pain and suffering that you and I face. He looks at the loss that we face and he says, listen, that suffering, the suffering you're facing is light and momentary. And some of you are like, not mine. Mine is not light. Some of you are like, the thing I'm going through right now, dude, it is heavy. It is so heavy. The the loss I'm facing, the adversity I'm facing, the suffering, it is so heavy that I don't even feel like I can, I can't bear the weight of this. It is crushing me. That's how heavy this is. 
And the apostle Paul would look at us and he'd say, no, the suffering that you're going through right now is light and momentary. And listen, he doesn't say that to patronize us. He doesn't say that to minimize our pain and suffering. But instead, he says that to accentuate the immensity of the glory that God wants to accomplish through it. And the Apostle Paul basically uses this metaphor. It's like a weight metaphor. He says, our sufferings right now are light and temporary, light and momentary, compared to the eternal weight of glory that God is trying to accomplish. Which, by the way, this is a really helpful metaphor, this idea of weightiness. And the reason is because uh, the word glory, as some of you guys, maybe as I talk about this idea of glory, you're like, what exactly is that? Right? Glory is kind of a churchy word. It's something we sing, we sing here in church. But like, what, what does that even mean? Here's what the word glory means. The word glory literally means weightiness. That's what it means. It means, it means importance, majesty, an opinion that you have about something, it's weightiness. In fact, we use this same term sometimes, don't we? So for example, I might say that guy's opinion carries more weight than anyone else's. And what am I saying? What I'm saying is that guy, I have a higher opinion of him. He has more credentials. He has greater glory than anyone else's opinion does in this matter. That's that idea. And so this is the idea of glory. It is this idea of weightiness. And so what the Bible teaches us over and over and over again is this, is that my adversity is an opportunity for unimaginable glory. Now, some of you are like, okay, that sounds fascinating and biblical and neat, but like, what in the world does that even mean? And how does it even play out practically speaking? All right, well, this is where John 11 comes in because John 11 is going to take that principle and it's going to show us what it looks like in action. All right, and so that's where we're going to kind of cut in is in John 11. Now, John 11 contains within it probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's the story of Lazarus raising from the dead. Um, this story is so unbelievably powerful. In fact, we ourselves at the Medina East Campus found ourselves in this passage only two years ago. Uh, and it's so awesome and it's so wonderful that we have to go back. We have to go back. And we're going to look at it today from a slightly different angle than we did a couple years ago. But man, what a powerful passage. So let's just go ahead and cut in verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Here we go. Here it starts. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, which was a village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That happened on a different occasion. Verse three, so the sisters sent word to Jesus and they said, Lord, the one you love is sick. All right, so let's just pause there for a minute, kind of set things up. So basically, John, the, the author of the book of John, tells us uh, that Jesus, while he was on this earth and as he performed ministry, that Jesus built some very strong relationships with different people. And one of the families that Jesus was extremely close to was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These guys were siblings. And the Bible tells us that they had a deep love for each other. They were family friends. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus so much and his, and his sisters uh, that when Lazarus died and his sisters sent word to Jesus that uh, Lazarus was sick, the only thing they said was, Jesus, the one you love is sick. And Jesus knew exactly who they were talking about because Lazarus and him were buddies. So the Bible says that Lazarus is sick. And of course, we know that this wasn't just like he had the sniffles. This was like terminally ill because it ends up that Lazarus dies, as we're going to see. But watch Jesus' response. This is crazy. Look at verse 4. Jesus says this. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, that God's Son may be glorified through it. All right, so this is wild. Jesus hears that his good friend who he loves is sick. 
And Jesus' first response is he says this. He says, he says, this sickness will not end in death. This sickness is not going to end in death. And some of you, maybe you guessed uh, this already, but the title of this series, No End in Death, we actually got that title from this verse. Jesus says, no, this is not going to end in death. What I find so fascinating, though, is not just what Jesus said there, but what Jesus didn't say. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but do you notice that Jesus didn't say, Lazarus isn't going to die? He didn't say that. Because we, in fact, know that Lazarus is going to die. But Jesus says, no, no, no. This is not going to end in death. And so at the very beginning of this story, before we go through all of the suffering and all of the pain that we're going to see in John chapter 11, Jesus tells us how it's going to end. He's like, here's how it's going to end. It's not going to end in death. It's not going to end in death. That's where this thing is going. But not only does Jesus tell us where this is going and how this is going to end, but he also tells us why all of the events that we're about to see are going to take place. Why all of the suffering and why all of the pain and why all of the tears and why all of the loss and why, and notice what he says in the second part of verse four. He says, no, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. You see what Jesus says? He says, this adversity is an opportunity for unimaginable glory. This is going to result in glory, right? God is going to be magnified. The opinion and the weight of who God is and of who the Son of God is, Jesus Christ, is going to be magnified as a result of this. Now, now let me just say real quick, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and I know not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus. Some of you guys are still investigating that. And if that's the case, let me just say, man, we count it an honor that you would let us be part of that investigation. But listen, for those of us who follow Jesus... We have the exact same hope that we have in the beginning. We have the exact same promise. Jesus has told us how it's going to end. It is not going to end in death. And Jesus has told us the ultimate result. It's going to end in glory. We have the same promises that the disciples have in this passage. But then watch this. Watch what happens in verse 5. This right here is just crazy. Watch this next part. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick... He stayed where he was for two more days. I know we just got to pause here because this is so crazy. For some of you, these two verses are going to introduce to you a new category of thought that you do not currently have. All right? And I want you just to notice what the passage says. Notice it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay? And so the, this is the second time we are told that Jesus loved these guys. We can always be certain of his love. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus cared for him. But then notice what it says. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. In other words, Jesus let him die. Rather than running to Lazarus and healing him from his sickness, rather than coming to his side and being with Mary and Martha in the midst of this, Jesus stayed and let Lazarus die. And here's the crazy thing. When I first read this passage, I remember I saw that it said so, and I thought that shouldn't say so. That should say but, right? That should say Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but he let him die. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but he stayed where he was, and he wasn't able to get to them. That's what it should say, but that's not what it says. It says so. Jesus loved them, so he let him die. And like I said, you guys, this introduces for us a whole new category of thinking. You see, we're dealing with the question, how can a loving God allow pain, suffering, and loss? And this passage just told us that sometimes God allows pain, suffering, and loss 
because he loves us. Not in spite of his love, but precisely because of his love. And some of us are like, how how is that even possible? How does that even work? Well, here's why. Because Jesus understands the eternal weight of glory that he's going to accomplish through this suffering. So much so that the suffering that they're going to face is only going to appear to be a light and momentary affliction compared to what Jesus is going to accomplish. And And so it's crazy. Jesus loved them, so he let him. Let him die. And then what happens, Bible tells us, Jesus and his disciples have some further conversation. Lazarus finally dies after they've been away for a couple of days. And if you hop down to verse 11, look what it says in verse 11. It says, after he said this, Jesus went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So, so Jesus, basically Lazarus dies and Jesus comes to his disciples. And I don't know if he's trying to be diplomatic or something, but he's like, guys, um, Lazarus, our friend, has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up now. And the disciples just like, don't get it, right? They're just like, well, you should sleep. I mean, you should get some shut eye. That's good for him, right? He's sick. He probably needs some good solid rest, you know? And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. He, he's, he's dead His disciples didn't understand that, which by the way, you can't blame them. I I think that you and I would think the same thing. Why? Because Jesus, a couple verses earlier, just told them this is not going to end in death. So they probably thought, well, that means he's not going to die. Well, now he's dead. But then, then check this out, verse 14. So he told them plainly, look, Lazarus is dead. And then verse 15 is crazy. Look at this. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So let us go to him. You guys, John 11 is full of so many paradoxes. First, Jesus says this sickness is not going to end in death, and then Lazarus dies. Then the Bible says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he let Lazarus die. And now the Bible tells us in this passage, now the Bible tells us right here that he says to them, listen, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad. I'm glad. Now, now, let's just be clear here. Jesus is not glad that Lazarus is dead. That's not what's going on. Jesus doesn't rejoice for a second in human suffering. Right? In fact, later on in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus weeps in the face of the death of Lazarus. So Jesus takes no joy in human suffering. So he's not glad that Lazarus is dead, but he's glad. Why? Because of what it's going to result in. Jesus says, you guys, you guys are going to believe there's going to be a greater opinion, a greater majesty, a greater glory that's attributed to me as a result of this suffering that you're going about to go through. Because, listen, your adversity is an opportunity for unimaginable glory. So here's what happens. Some of you guys know the story. Jesus, the Bible tells us, and his disciples eventually go to the town of Bethany. By the time they get to Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were, the Bible tells us that Lazarus has already been dead for four days. So the funeral's already happened. Everything has already went down. The family's mourning and everyone's sad. And it's interesting because the Bible tells us that when Jesus and his disciples roll into town, Mary and Martha catch wind that Jesus is there. And it's so fascinating that the Bible tells us that Mary and Martha have two very different emotional responses to Jesus. We've actually talked about this in the past, and so I'll just kind of recap what we've said before. But basically, Mary and Martha, when when, when Jesus comes into town, they respond emotionally in two different ways. The Bible tells us that Martha runs out to Jesus. Mary stays back. And it's interesting because the Bible, when it says that Martha ran out to Jesus, the word that's used for she went out to meet him is the same word that's used um, for an altercation, right? So basically, Martha is ticked, man. 
She comes storming out to, you can just see her, can't you? She just comes storming out to Jesus and she's got her fists ready. And she's just like, Jesus, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened and my brother wouldn't have died. And she's angry. She's angry. And then you have Mary. Mary, on the other hand, is, when she hears that Jesus is there, she can't even bring herself to face him. She can't even bring herself to get up and go to him. And the Bible says that when she finally does go to Jesus, that she collapses at his feet and she weeps. She can't even bring herself to speak to him. And listen, you see, Martha, man, she mourns with her fists, right? And Mary, she she mourns desperately and she cries. And the cool thing about this passage, you guys, is the Bible tells us that never once, as Mary and Martha are questioning Jesus and doubting Jesus, never once does Jesus correct them. Never once does Jesus rebuke them. Never once does Jesus say, man, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? How dare you question me? Never once does he do that. And that tells us something awesome. What it tells us is this, that not everyone mourns the same. Not, not, that not everyone faces pain, suffering, and loss in the same way. For some, you're more like Martha, man. You, you, you get angry with God. Your prayers look more like assaults, right? For some of us, we look more like Mary. We respond emotionally in desperation. We collapse at the feet of Jesus. But here's the awesome thing that the Bible tells us. It tells us that no matter how you mourn, no matter how you grieve, no matter how you deal with suffering, pain, and loss, what your emotional response is, Jesus meets you right there. He meets you right there. And he can take your objections, and he can take your anger, and he can take your sadness. He can take those things. He meets you right there. But here's what I think is so fascinating. As even though Mary and Martha have two very different emotional responses to Jesus, they both say the same thing. And here's what they both say. They, be, they both say this. Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Martha probably said it in an accusatory way. Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary probably said it in a desperate way. Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But they both said the same thing, which I think is so fascinating and I think is so revealing. Because what does that tell us? Here's what that tells us. Mary and Martha had a very high opinion of Jesus, a very high opinion of Jesus. They actually believed that Jesus could heal Lazarus from sickness. They believed that. And so they had, listen, they had a certain glory that was attributed to Jesus, right? A certain weightiness, a certain opinion about Jesus. They said, Jesus, if you would have been here, we believe that you can work miracles. We believe that you're powerful. We believe that maybe you're even a prophet or that you're from God. And if you were here, we believe that you could have healed our brother and kept him from death. And so the Bible tells us Mary and Martha had a high opinion of Jesus, but it also tells us they had a limited opinion of Jesus, They had attributed to Jesus a certain amount of glory, but it was a limited amount of glory because they said, Jesus, we believe that you can heal our brother, but we don't believe you can raise him from the dead. They had no category for that, right? That was unimaginable to them that Jesus was capable of doing something like that, right? And not only them, but I want you to notice too, also the crowds had a limited understanding of Jesus. If you glance down at verse 36 with me, they see Jesus weeping. The crowds see Jesus weeping. And look at what it says in verse 36, 30, uh, I'm sorry. It says, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And so the crowd said, look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus. But then some of them said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? In other words, what they said there is they're dealing with the same question you and I are this morning. They're like, well, he loved him. Well, why did he let him die? We don't understand. How could a loving God, how could a God who loves Lazarus allow for pain, suffering, and loss? And how is that possible? And they're dealing with, listen, they're dealing with the same issue that Mary and Martha are dealing with and the same issue that we are. They had a limited 
uh, perspective, a limited glory that was attached to Jesus. And listen, here's the thing. For you and I too, for everyone in this room, each one of us has a certain weight of glory that we attribute to Jesus Christ. And for some of you, you have a, the, the, the weight of glory that you give to Jesus is you're like, look, he is a good teacher. That's what Jesus is. Right, he is a good teacher. His words have weight. He is a good moral counselor. And so, and so his words have a certain amount of weight to me. Some of you would say, man, I, I think that God is capable of, of performing miracles. I think God could heal people if he wanted to. And you attribute a certain weight of glory to Jesus. You have a certain opinion of who he is. For some of us, we'd even say, man, God has a, God is, God has a certain weight of glory. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus rose. That's my opinion about who he is. But the truth is that every single one of us in this room attribute to Jesus a certain weight of glory. And here's the other thing I know. Every single one of us has limits that we put on the glory that we give to Jesus. Because some of us would say pain, suffering, loss, the hard thing that you're going through, the pain and the tragedy. Some of you would say that has greater weight than your Jesus. Let me just tell you that Jesus wants to blow that apart. And that in this passage, Jesus is about to blow that apart. And so check out what happens next. Look at this. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved. So he was deeply moved. Jesus is not at all excited about human suffering. He was deeply moved. He came to the tomb and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Jesus said, roll that stone away. Get that stone out of here. But then I want you to notice Martha's response. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been in there for four days. Now this response is very revealing. I want you to notice her response. Jesus, in the midst of all this, right? All this is happening. He goes over to Lazarus's grave. He says, roll away the stone. And notice what Martha says. Martha doesn't say, yeah, Jesus, man, you go roll away that stone. You go heal my brother, raise him from the dead. I believe you can do all things. That's not what she says. You know what she says? She says, no, don't do it. He's been dead for four days. He stinks. Don't open that, right? In other words, what is it revealing? It's revealing the limited view that she had about Jesus, the decreased glory that she attributed to him. What does Jesus say? Look at Jesus' response. This is awesome. Verse 40, Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Did I not tell you? You know, one of the most fascinating things about this passage is that over four times, no less than four times in this passage, does Jesus explicitly tell his disciples and those around him that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. No less than four times. But nobody believes him. At the very beginning, they say, hey, Lazarus is sick. And what what does Jesus say? He says, yeah, this sickness is not going to end in death. And everyone was probably like, we don't know what he means by that. I guess Lazarus isn't going to die. But then Lazarus died, right? And then Jesus looked at his disciples, you remember this? And he said to them, you guys, Lazarus fell asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. And they're like, well, he should get some rest. He's like, no, he's dead. And I'm going to go wake him up. I'm going to go raise him. And the disciples are probably like, I don't know what he's talking about. We hardly ever know what Jesus is talking about anyway, most of the time. But do you know Peter? And Peter's like, I know a guy. You know, what about you, Thomas? He's like, I doubt it, you know, and the whole thing. And, and then, and then the Bible tells us that he goes to Martha and Martha, Martha comes out, man. She's all huffy and puffy. She's like, Jesus, if you would have been here, no, no, no. And you remember what Jesus tells her? He looks at her right in the eye and he says, Martha, your brother's going to rise. He's going to raise from the dead. And she's, you remember what she says? She says, I know, I know, I know in the last day. And I've read my Bible and blah, blah, blah. Thanks for the Christian cliche. And Jesus goes, Martha, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection. 
do you believe this? And Martha goes, yeah, 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 I believe it. And then when it finally, Jesus, no less than four times, tells them, I'm going to raise him. I'm going to raise him. And God's going to be glorified. And then it finally gets there. And he says, roll away the stone. And they're like, no, don't. He stinks. He's been in there four days. They didn't believe it. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? If you believe, you're going to see the glory. The Bible says that Jesus went in front of the mouth of that tomb. And he rolled away the stone and he prayed a prayer. And it was an awesome prayer, by the way. Basically, he said, God, I'm not praying for my sake, but for all these people who don't believe you. And then he goes into the tomb, and the Bible says he looks at Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the Bible says that the dead man walks out. And man, you got to imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. And you got to imagine for just a second. And I can only imagine that that crowd, the crowd that was there, my guess is at the same time, they were probably full of fear, and bewilderment, and excitement, and joy, and terror. Why? Because the limited view of Jesus that they had just got obliterated, right? The, the, the confines and the boundaries that they put on the glory of God had just exploded into unimaginable territory. My guess is that their faith meter was like, woo, you know? They were like, wow, we did not see that coming, you know? We did not have a category for what just happened right here, right now. And the whole thing, the Bible tells us that everything, you know what the result was? The result was, by the way, that, that the crowds that were there and the disciples and that Mary and Martha and the family, that they believed, Bible says, more and more believed. And their faith went from here to here. And Jesus' glory, their, his weightiness, their opinion that they had of him increased into unimaginable territories and it ended just like Jesus said. You see, what I want you to notice in this passage, what it shows us is it shows us that the pattern of the Bible is exactly what we see in here, right? And what is that pattern? It's that glory is, an, is, is a means or suffering is a means to glory. Jesus used this. He didn't cause this suffering. He didn't cause this death. But look, he leveraged it and he used it and he maximized it for his glory. The other thing we see in this passage is that this glory had to be revealed. Throughout the whole story, what do you see? Everyone's questioning Jesus. Everyone's doubting Jesus. Even his disciples are like, we don't understand this guy. Martha's like, I don't believe you. No one believes him because his glory is yet to be revealed. But how does it end? It ends with a glory that far outweighed suffering. It ended with a glory that was more magnificent than the suffering that these guys faced. Listen, by the end of this chapter, everything that was sad everything that was painful, everything that seemed so permanent was reversed. Everything. Every tear of sadness by the end of this story turned into a tear of joy. Every question and every doubt by the end of this story turned into increased faith and increased belief. And listen, what appeared to be permanent and and long-lasting sufferings, waiting sufferings, ended up being light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that Jesus was accomplishing. It was unimaginable. I told you guys last week, if you were here, I, I told you the story about um, when I went to Colorado with, uh, with some of my buddies. We went, uh, mount, we went, uh, we went camping in the, in the Colorado mountains. We went whitewater rafting as well. I told you about our camping experience, which was hysterical. And I want to tell you a little bit about our whitewater rafting experience too. So the reason we went out to Colorado in the first place was because I knew a whitewater rafting instructor. So when I was a freshman in college, there was a guy who was a junior. He was my RA. His name was Davey. And Davey was from Colorado, and he was a whitewater rafting instructor. 
And uh, he was probably one of the sweetest guys I ever met. You ever just meet someone that they're just like one of the most gentle, loving people? That was Davey. He was just so sweet. Like, so you would talk to him. He's like, hey, man, how you doing, buddy? You know, kind of soft-spoken. He'd be like, you, you know, are, are your grades doing pretty good? It's good to see you, man. You know, hey, I'm really going to need you to clean your room, guys. It's that kind of guy, you know. And just a sweetheart of a dude. And I remember uh, one night, a bunch of us were up till like three in the morning, which was like, you know, every night. And we were talking about all types of different things. And I remember some of the upperclassmen started telling Davey stories. And they were like, dude, Davey is so awesome. That guy is, that guy is seriously so boss. And I was like, Davey? And they're like, yeah, dude, Davey's awesome. And I was like, like gentle Davey? And they're like, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about right now. They're like, Chuck Norris has nightmares about Davey, all right? Davey is so legit. And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? And they're like, have you ever went whitewater rafting with Davey? And I'm like, well, no. And they're like, <laughs> you got to go whitewater. This guy's incredible. You got to go. You, you know, you're such a noob. And I was like, Davey? I was like, you mean gentle Davey? I, can't, I, don't, see, I don't think he's got it in him. They're like, dude, you got to go. So, so I was like, all right. So me and my buddies went out to Colorado. And we went to, uh, he, he, uh, Davey worked at an outfitter, a whitewater rafting outfitter that was right on the Arkansas River. And so we got there and I remember, you know, we got there and Davey was all, you know, Davey was Davey. He came out and said, hey guys, how you doing? Did you guys have a good trip? We're like, yeah, we did. You want some muffins? You know, he didn't actually say that part, but we were like, yeah, man, it's good to see you. And he's like, oh yeah. It's like, I'm so glad you guys are here. He's like, I'll tell you what, you guys want to do some whitewater rafting? And we're like, absolutely. And he's like, okay. He's like, why don't you guys go over to that bar and get on some wetsuits, grab an oar meet me by the river. I'll be there in a second. So like, okay. So we get ourselves all set up and we go out by the river and there's a group of us. There's a whole group of people that were going to go whitewater rafting. And I remember Davey came out to give us instructions and he came out, he had these sweet aviator glasses on these sunglasses. I'm telling you, I saw a different side of Davey. Davey came out and he goes, welcome to my river. And he goes, let me tell you how this is going to work. We're going to take a seven and a half mile trip down these rapids. We're going to see up to class four rapids. So I need every single one of you to pay attention to my commands and directives as we go down. He's like, when I say right, you go right. When I say left, we go left. He gave us all the instructions and we got in the boat. And I thought, okay, I'm seeing it. Davey's pretty awesome. I get it. I get it. So we get in the boat. And of course, we all have these oars that are like this big. And Davey's got these two massive oars and he's sitting up high because he's the guy that's in charge, right? And so we all get in the boat. And of course, me and my friends, once we get in, we're just excited. So we're splashing each other and goofing off and laughing and having fun. And I look back at Davey and Davey's just like stoic, you know, no smile on his face. He's got his two oars and he's just scanning the scene. He's just like this, you know? And I'm like, I get it. Davey's tough. I understand. Blah, blah, blah. Sure. He can play the game, you know? So we hit the first set of rapids and it was awesome. It was like a roller coaster. You know, we had a blast. We went through it. And so we're just laughing and we're having a great time. I like glance back at Davey to see if he's having a good time. And again, just unflappable. He's just like this, you know? So we get through the first set of rapids. We hit the second set of rapids. Same thing. It was awesome. A little more intense this time, but it was awesome. We had fun. We were laughing. We're like, dude, that was crazy. I look back at Davey. And again, Davey's just like, you know? And then we hit, then we hit the third class. And Davey, Davey just said, we're about to hit fours. He's like, so everybody... He's like, I need you to pay attention to me. So we hit these rapids. I'm telling you, it was terrifying. These rapids were crazy. We were bouncing all over the place and we're all like screaming, trying to figure out what to do and, and all this type of stuff. And I look back at Davey and again, he's just like this, just maneuvering. And then we hit this one rapid and the boat goes down and it comes up and the guy in the front goes flipping out of the boat into these class four rapids, all right? And I was just like, oh my gosh, we're all gonna die. Davey, what have you done? Curse your name, you know? And, and... <laughs> It was crazy. And then, this is awesome. I look back at Davey, and Davey just goes, this is so cool. Not, he, not, even, not even flinching. He just goes, oars up. 
And all of us put our oars up, and he proceeds to put his two oars down, and he does this spin move, this maneuver where he, by himself in these rapids, he spins the boat, the raft, and he, he ends up in this spot. And right when the dude comes out of the water, he takes his oar, he picks him up with his oar, and he puts him back on the boat. He does another spin maneuver and gets back onto the river, and we're all just like, Davy, you know? And Davy's just like, you know what I mean? And it was so cool that there was a bunch of people that were on the sides of the river and they were clapping at what happened. And I'm just telling you, the rest of the trip, the rest of the trip, we were telling Davy stories. We were like, dude, Davy, Davy, I got to get a Davy t-shirt. I want Davy tattooed on my back. Davy, you know? And uh, I remember I, when I got back, as a, I was a sophomore this year and Davy was a senior. And I remember one night, late at night, we were talking with some of the freshmen and we were telling Davy stories. And the guys were like, you mean sweet old Davy? And I was like, <laughs> you don't even know what you're talking about. Right? <laughs> Listen, here, here's the point. Here's the point. All right. Suffering and adversity is an opportunity for Jesus Christ to be magnified. And here's the awesome thing is that for those of us who believe and for those of us who don't lose faith and for those of us who, who, who stay with Jesus, even when his glory is not to be revealed, that means, look, we get to share in it. We get to share in his glory. We get to ride with the king. And in the end, the Bible says the end of all things, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible tells us that those of us who follow him, we're going to be on this side. And we get to say he's our king. We're going to have Jesus stories about what he did with my suffering and what he did with my pain and what he did with my loss because there is no end in death. And even though I'm not certain of his reasons, I'm always certain of his love. And because my adversity was an opportunity for unimaginable glory. This is where this is going. Yes, the book of Revelation tells us where this ends. It tells us where this whole life is going. And here's where it goes. Revelation chapter 21 says this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and they will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There's no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain for the old order of things has passed away. See what Jesus says? He says, this is where it's going. It's going somewhere good. In fact, Isaiah chapter 45 says it this way. It says that in those days, the new heavens, the new earth are going to come and the old things are going to pass away, nor will they even be remembered. The painful suffering that you're going through right now, whatever it is that you're facing, the thing that is so weighty that you don't think you can get through it is going to fade like a dream when we get to the eternal weight of glory that Jesus Christ wants to accomplish through us. I'm going to end with this. I think this is so great. I got this... Um, it's actually from Tim Keller's book. Um, it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Awesome book. But I, want you, I just want to quote what he says. This is so good. And I'll be finished with this. He said this. He said, just after the climax of the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings series, which many of you know the Lord of the Rings, he says, Samwise Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead as he thought, but he was alive. This is so cool. And he cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I myself was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Listen, my adversity is an opportunity for unimaginable glory. Let's pray. Jesus, it's unreal for me to think that you can take the heaviness and the weightiness of our suffering 
and you can redeem it to achieve an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs our suffering. God, there are men and women in this room right now who can't bear the weight of what they're going through. It's crushing them. The loss, the pain, the suffering, the hurt. But Jesus, I pray we wouldn't lose faith. Help us to believe because you yourself said, did I not tell you, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory. And so Father, I pray you'd help us to hold on. Increase our faith, God. Increase our belief. Let us believe in you that we can see your glory and that we can share in it. For some of us, God, we might not see that glory on this side of life. We might not. But the truth is there is no end in death and we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. And so God, I pray you'd solidify this in our hearts today. God, for the person in this room who doesn't know you, the person in this room who's investigating you, I pray that this very moment they put their faith in you. Because Jesus, even though we can't see it in the moment, your glory is coming. And we know that's where it's going. And Jesus, we want to ride with the king. So I pray, Father, for the person who hasn't put their faith in you, that they would place their faith in you at this moment. God, thank you for the hope that you've given us. It's beyond this life, that our sufferings are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that you're accomplishing in us. God, we are so loved by you. We are so cared for. And even though we can't see the reasons, we know you do. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to hold fast to this belief, God, the resurrection of the dead, and this belief that you're accomplishing something wonderful, even through the most painful circumstances, that everything sad will come untrue. And it'll be better because of it. And so, Father, I want to say thank you for this hope that we have. And I want to pray it in Jesus' name.